Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sangera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast. It's been described as an epidemic, a tax seemingly at random, on banks and schools and hospitals, holding people and institutions to ransom by infecting their computer systems and seizing the data. And these ransomware attacks, they're costing millions. And over the last couple of years, one name has emerged to become the leading brand, if you like, in this burgeoning business, Revil. And this week, the great Nikki Wolf investigates who it is, what it is, where it's based, and who really is behind it. I was out for a jog on a Saturday morning, week before Easter. It's late March 2021. I'm Sudan Moynihan, CEO of the Harris Federation, a group of 51 academies, all located in London. On his run, Sudan's phone rang. On the other end was one of the techs responsible for the IT system all Harris Federation schools used. Overnight, one of the system's servers had failed, he told Dan. He'd checked to find out why, and what he found marked the beginning of a months-long nightmare. He'd discovered that the server had been encrypted, so that immediately meant we'd been attacked by malware. All the schools in his group used the same computer system, and it had been hacked, infected with a hostile computer program, malware. Later, Dan would find out that the Harris School's computers had been accessed by the hackers a few days earlier, on the Wednesday. For three days, they'd done nothing, just poked around, gathered intelligence. Then, on Friday night, the perfect time to cause chaos with staff off for the weekend, the hackers activated their program. It was a specific kind of virus which swallows up all the data on a computer network and encrypts it. That means it scrambles it mathematically, locking it off from anyone who doesn't have the specific cryptographic key. Without the key, the data is effectively destroyed, wiped out. And when you try to log in to an affected computer, all you get is a text file containing a simple message. Welcome. Again. What's happened? Your files are encrypted and currently unavailable. You can check it off. By the way, everything is possible to recover. But you have to follow our instructions. Congratulations. 
You've been hit by ransomware. My stomach fell uh, through the floor, really. I had a sick, nauseous feeling because I knew this would have been done with a purpose and the purpose was to extract something from us, probably for financial gain. It's nothing new at all, really. It's a stick-up, a mugging, a shakedown. Nice network you have here. Lots of data, lots of critical information. Very important for you, all this stuff. Be a shame if something was to happen to it. It's not particularly subtle. The program instructs its victims to hand over a certain amount of money in the form of cryptocurrency, or all that data either gets eradicated or leaked online, whichever the target would find most disastrous. In the past year or two, this type of attack has been spreading, becoming increasingly common. A major incident is declared after almost 40 NHS organisations across England and Scotland are hit by a large-scale cyber attack. It's hit hospitals, NHS critical infrastructure. Colonial pipeline tonight still not pumping fuel across America thanks to a cyber attack. Computer company Acer has apparently been targeted by ransomware hackers. Companies around the world. The group is reportedly giving Acer until Sunday to pay up. Or it's cost millions of dollars in ransom payments and millions more in disruption. Ransomware's first alleged casualty. The family is suing, arguing the cyber attack caused staff to miss troubling signs which resulted in the death of their infant daughter. And it's cost lives too. On the Sunday, we'd contacted the government's uh, National Cyber Security Centre and they'd listed a series of firms that could help you with this if you'd been hacked. And we'd contacted all of those firms on the Sunday and none of them could take us on because they were all at capacity dealing with other people who'd been hacked. On the advice of one of his board members who worked in the IT industry, Dan Moynihan brought in a specialist company based in Israel to help. That's when he learned who, or rather what, was attacking them. And they quickly saw the calling card in the software of our evil. The schools of the Harris Federation, 38,000 pupils, 5,000 teachers and staff, had become the latest victims of a group which was on the way to being one of the highest profile ransomware operators in the world. They called themselves Our Evil or Weevil. I'm Nicky Wolf, and this week on the Slow Newscast, I'm on the trail of Our Evil. Who are they? What are they? What's behind this malicious software that holds your data hostage? and demands millions in ransom payments. The ransom demand was $4 million in cryptocurrency, which would double if it wasn't paid within, I think, 10 days. Now, we're a group of schools, so we were being asked for $4 million, uh, potentially $8 million. So Dan Moynihan decided to take a stand. I mean, we just don't. We just don't have that. But even if we had it, we weren't, we weren't going to pay it. But it's 2021. Everything depends on the computer network. That's just a fact of life now. Modern schools use IT for all sorts of things. 
All of our teaching materials are held on our network. CCTV systems operate on computers. Many of the academies have electronic doors and gates which are secured using the internet, registers, medical details for pupils, predicted grades in a year where there were no exams and predicted grades uh, had to be provided to exam boards, uh, fire systems, safety systems, building management systems, everything relied on IT. We were then left with a decision, do we open on Monday? Did we have safeguarding information? Did we know medical details for children, peanut allergies, people who should be taking medicine approved by parents? Luckily, the schools could cobble together the life-critical stuff from hard backups, health records especially. It was clear opening on Monday was going to be a nightmare. But closing down would have had real consequences too. A-level and GCSE exams were cancelled because of the pandemic, and teachers were instead due to submit their grades for pupils in just four weeks. And in any case, there was no way of knowing how long the data hostage crisis would last. You know, uh, nearly half of our children are eligible for free school meals. They live in social housing. They have difficult lives. And um, we decided, given that we'd been closed for so much during the pandemic, we would open on Monday morning. When all 51 schools came back Monday morning, with much of their computer networks still held hostage by our evil, it was inevitably chaos. Some schools, their front doors were open and insecure. Other schools struggled to get their doors open. We lost security systems. So in some schools, we lost fire systems and we had to institute fire wardens, people on corridors with radios. We lost access to medical details, but we knew we had a hard copy of those, so we were able to open for youngsters. But, I mean, there are things like sometimes parents are separated, sometimes one parent doesn't have access. All of that's on a system. Fortunately, we had hard copies of it, but it was pretty stressful. Paying for school meals is done using an electronic swipe card. That didn't work. So we effectively gave everyone free food for a number of weeks and then tried to sort it out later. Lighting systems coming on and off and teaching materials are all, you know, most modern classrooms have an electronic whiteboard, schemes of work, lesson plans, all of that is stored electronically and uh, it, wasn't, it just wasn't available. Dan felt sick. By the end of the week, the company Dan had bought in had opened a direct line of negotiation with our evil. And so a kind of dance ensued where we were clear from the beginning that we weren't going to pay because, firstly, we had no guarantee that our systems would be uh, decrypted. And secondly, even if we'd received a decryption key, what we discovered was that uh, it could take weeks to use that to get your data back. But, but more importantly, we are a group of schools receiving public money. And in our particular business, we deal with turns, turning around struggling and failing schools for disadvantaged kids. We were in no position to be giving cash for that purpose to a group of criminals. It's just not what we're for. And to have done so would have meant that hacks in the education sector would be much more likely in future. And we certainly didn't want to be responsible for that. Our evil pulled out all the stops, cajoling, threatening, trying everything they could to squeeze Dan into giving them what they wanted. 
he held his ground. As it became apparent we weren't paying, they started phoning our office, asking to speak to people in senior positions. The whole thing was bizarre, really. To get a better sense of what that negotiation was like, I got in touch with Neil Hare Brown. The founder and CEO of Storm Guidance, a boutique cyber risk advisory firm, Neil's been the point of contact between our evil and victims in situations like this many times before. When it comes to ransomware, it's a very developed organised criminal process. And there are various players that act in a particular ransomware attack to, to make up the whole attack. So it's not one single attacker that breaks into an, or that figures out that an organisation is vulnerable, then breaks into their network, then drops the ransomware, then begins the negotiation process and, and completes payments. Each of those are actually completely different actors, different people. There are a whole range of ransomware groups and they all operate in what's called ransomware as a service. So the main, if you like, authors of the ransomware malware provide a, a website on the dark web and they recruit affiliates and those affiliates will provide various roles in the attack sequences that, that I just described. So you might have, for instance, initial access brokers that figure out that it's possible to break into a particular system. They will then sell that information onto the actual attackers who will then break into that system, drop the ransomware. They will also be affiliates uh, of a particular ransomware group. Then they'll drop the ransomware that, that will then be encrypted. And then when the victim then wants to begin a ransom negotiation process, they will then be talking to a completely another group of people who will literally like a call center that will begin the actual um, ransom negotiation. Just what kind of people are they? Are they rude? Are they speaking fluent English? Are they in, you know, what, what vibes do you, did you get from them? Yeah, their English is pretty good. Um, it's not perfect, I would say, but if you like the strata of the the criminal enterprise that you're dealing with when negotiating a ransom is essentially like a call center and so it's definitely not lone actors in hoodies there uh, behind a, a computer talking to you it's a call center operation there are there are tens if not hundreds of people who are negotiating these ransoms sitting there at desks they go off and have meetings just like just like legitimate business people do and they discuss, you know, what, what's going to be acceptable or unacceptable, what intelligence they've got, which might inform the level of ransom that they're prepared to demand in the first place and to negotiate afterwards. I, I just love this idea of a, a kind of a call centre, like in, you know, the office, if you were kind of executing these these ransoms on, on companies and then, you know, going out to gossip behind the behind the water cooler yeah absolutely yeah i've got i've got i've got photographs of i've got photographs in 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 these type of call center operations neil sends the picture and it really does just look like it could be any office anywhere row on row of blue cubicles cheap pine desks notices pinned to a corkboard on the wall who knew mass extortion could be so banal so yeah it's just like if you were to go into a call center at one of the big uh, legitimate businesses in in the UK uh, that runs these things, then immediately go into the, one of these rebuild call centres. You'll see pretty much exactly the same operation, except one is one is a legitimate business and the other one is criminal enterprise. I can't hide how completely compelling this image is to me. Are there office politics? 
Do they gossip on Slack? Do they all go for happy hour drinks after a long day of digital blackmail? I'm obsessed. The most famous example of ransomware is probably still the 2014 Sony Pictures hack, which led to a whole tranche of extremely embarrassing internal documents and emails being leaked online. But that one was actually unusual. It was done by hackers working for the government of North Korea in explicit retaliation for the Seth Rogen comedy The Interview, which depicted Kim Jong-un's death. Honestly, that's true. But more often than not, ransomware isn't like that. Our evil are almost certainly Russian, or at least most of their members are. Gandcrab, the group our evil are thought to have evolved from, were Russian. And the our evil software seems specifically designed to whitelist, i.e. not target, computers that have the keyboard laid out for the Russian language. Affiliates are asked not to attack organizations based in the CIS, the former Soviet states, places like Belarus or Georgia or Kazakhstan. But none of that means the gangs are operated by the Russian state itself, the same way the Sony hack was by North Korea. It's more complicated than that. So my name is Megan Stiefel. I'm currently the Global Policy Officer at a nonprofit organization called the Global Cyber Alliance. Megan has also served as a White House advisor on cyber policy, and before that, she was an attorney prosecuting cybercrime for the Department of Justice. So I would say that while it's certainly blurred in the case of ransomware, there is a distinction in in these kind of two or three groups, depending on how we think of them. So there is certainly one group. Those are the kind of pure criminals who are after this uh, or conducting this type of of activity for personal gain. You know that we have the hacktivists um, who are just kind of seeking fame. We have those who are seeking to have, um, you know, be remunerated for this, right? They're trying to get money. There are, in a second category of, of nation-state actors who are often undertaking this type of activity for, for more political purposes. Um, and then there's kind of this third category of actors who are in the, the Venn diagram of, of this, these two groups where they may be moonlighting. They may be so nation-state actors who are moonlighting and, and in their spare time working with criminal groups, leveraging the, the capabilities that they've learned in their day jobs as, as nation-state hackers to gain some money on the side. Particularly, I think that's of, of potential interest in the ransomware case because we do know that so many of these actors are operating out of Russia or former Soviet republics and you know whether or not they're getting enough money from their day jobs and that's what's causing them to kind of think about other opportunities. Our evil is a brand, part of a huge and lucrative industry. And it's an industry that's growing fast. Exact figures are hard to come by, but in 2020, companies paid at least $350 million in ransom. And that's just the ones we know about. We do know that's going up sharply. It's at least three times as much as was paid in 2019. In 2021, reported ransom payments had almost doubled that, almost $600 million by mid-October. And again, those are just the payments that get reported to authorities. That kind of growth is going to get noticed eventually. In spring 2021, in fact, while the Harris Federation was still negotiating with our evil, another ransomware group flew a little too close to the sun. 
The largest U.S. fuel pipeline is now the victim of a ransomware attack. And Brian Sullivan has the latest on the Colonial Pipeline. We are going to begin tonight with a run on gasoline from Florida to Virginia, with panicked drivers lining up at gas stations, fearing a fuel shortage. Right. And in fact, we have some breaking news here on this group. The group is called Dark Side. They are allegedly the group behind this attack on the pipeline. On May 7th, the Colonial Pipeline, which carries fuel from Texas across the American Southeast, was infected by ransomware called Darkside. The pipe was shut down and a state of emergency was issued in several states in order to prevent fuel shortages. After its owners paid a negotiated ransom of more than $4 million, Darkside did provide them with a software key to get back into the computer system. But still, the attack seemed to be a tipping point. Hospitals and schools, whatever. But hit America in the petroleum, it turns out, and the government is going to sit up and take notice. My administration uh, takes this very seriously. We have efforts underway with the FBI and DOJ. The Biden administration singled out Russia in particular. We do not believe the Russian government was involved in this attack, but we do have strong reason to believe that the criminals who did the attack are living in Russia. That's where it came from. We're from Russia. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
I would say there are a number of factors that make Russia a more hospitable place to conduct this activity from. And particularly, you know, in the United States, we there's a phrase that's kind of famous from from I don't know if it's Hollywood or elsewhere where, you know, I've run off to a non-extradition territory. Well, that is the case with Russia. We don't have an extradition treaty with the Russian Federation. Um, and so there's this idea that they're kind of uh, they may be perceived to be operating outside the scope of the long arm of the law for the United States. Secondly, there is, I think, a good degree of, of technical education in and around that country. And unfortunately, it's not a strong economy uh, as we have as strong an economy as we have in other in other developed nations. And so there is this need to kind of use those skills to to whatever means is going to pay the bills, you know, whether it be on behalf of the state or with these criminal groups who are offering ransomware as a service, there is an ability to, to monetize their skills. And so that, I would say, is the second piece of they, they need to make money. We may actually know more about our evil than any other ransomware organization right now. That's because some shit has gone down in the months since the Harris Federation was hacked. What, what's important to understand is um, how some of these cyber criminal groups are structured. This is Dmitry Alperovich. Hi. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator and co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike is the world's largest security company by market cap. Dimitri, as its former chief technology officer, has been on the front lines of the battle against malware. His current position at Silverado, a Washington, D.C. think tank focusing on cybersecurity, puts him right at the center of U.S. cybercrime policy. So you have a core gang like our evil or dark side or black matter that are really providing the infrastructure for execution of these operations, but they're actually not involved in the operations themselves. The right way um, to think about this is as a franchise model, right? McDonald's doesn't actually own the restaurants. They just provide the infrastructure, the food, the, the ingredients, the, the recipes, but someone else will do the work, will own the, the operations. That's what happens with these ransomware groups. They recruit these affiliates that will do the hacking, that will do the distribution of the malware that these gangs will supply them with, that will redirect victims to the ransomware portal where they'll negotiate the ransom with the groups. But most of the work will be done by the affiliates. They'll get the majority of the cut of the ransom as well. And our evil or, or, or dark side will just have to sit back and collect the payments and we'll continue to make sure that the infrastructure is available for these affiliates. But as a result, they're really not in control of who gets targeted. The affiliates can be all over the world. The range of their sophistication varies. Some of them may not even do the hacking directly, but they may buy uh, access to a network of a company through something, uh, someone called an access broker, which are dedicated hackers who only do the hacking operations. They only break into companies and then they resell access to those companies, to, to uh, someone else like these ransomware operators. So it's become a very convoluted and um, distributed ecosystem in cybercrime. And as a result, the ability to sort of control, you know, we've had, we've seen statements from some of these groups saying, well, we'll no longer attack, attack critical infrastructure. Well, they don't actually have a power to stop that, even if we believe their statements, because they're not the ones doing all the hacking. Following the colonial pipeline hack, the U.S. government started to push back. The Biden administration raised the issue of ransomware strongly when the president and Vladimir Putin met in Geneva for a summit in June. And what, what was the Geneva um, uh, agreement? Tell, tell us about what, what was um, 
what what we know about what was um, agreed between um, the president and uh, and Putin. First of all, it was a landmark summit because it was the first time that you had the two presidents meet uh, President Biden, President Putin uh, uh, in, in their roles. Uh, but also, it was the first time that you had the Russian president, and American president have cyber being such a huge part of the agenda. Biden is reported to have asked Putin, how would you feel if ransomware took on the pipelines from your oil fields? Which, I mean, that's not even a particularly veiled threat, is it? Well, again, it's complicated. We do know that some of these criminals do have connections to Russian intelligence services. In some cases, uh, they've been moonlighting for them when... They hack into a company and they find information that would be of use to Russian law enforcement, to Russian intelligence. They pass it on. Um, it is believed that many of them pay off local officials, not necessarily higher ups in the government, but people that sort of in their neighborhood um, that can provide protection to them from the really nasty criminals in Russia, sort of the organized criminal gangs that have the guns that can kill people. Um, after all, even though these are criminals, they're still computer nerds. They're spending most of their time in front of a computer terminal um, orchestrating these operations. And the last thing that they want is for someone to show up at their doorstep uh, waving a gun and demanding that they turn over all their profits to um, the, the really nasty criminals um, that you, you have um, a number of in, in different major Russian cities. So um, to protect themselves against that possibility, you need to pay off local law enforcement, uh, local intelligence officials to make sure that they will provide you what's known in Russia as Krisha or roof uh, protection from uh, from some of these nasty characters. So um, that really uh, is important to understand because while, uh, you know, we don't believe that these, these attacks have been directed by the Russian government, the Russian government certainly has the capability to stop it because if the decision gets made at the top, that this is no longer in the interest of the Russian Federation. Uh, I'm quite convinced that when Darkseid hit Colonial, they had no understanding of the importance of Colonial to the U.S. energy security or, or the repercussions that their attacks would cause. And maybe if they had known, they perhaps wouldn't even launch that because they wouldn't want all that uh, attention on them. And uh, I think the most important thing for leadership both in the United States and Russia to realize is that the last thing we want is for some 30-year-old in St. Petersburg that is part of these criminal operations to be able to hold hostage the entire very critical U.S.-Russia relationship. Um, that should not be acceptable to President Putin or President Biden. And it doesn't feel like that's in President Putin's interest to be the case, right? No, P President Putin ultimately wants control. And if he wants to escalate things between the U.S. and Russia, he wants to be the one to decide to do that. Behind the scenes, American law enforcement agencies were getting to work. The Harris Federation didn't pay any ransom in the end. But our evil had a big year elsewhere. In May, they hacked JBSSA, a huge Brazilian meat processing company, the biggest in the world, and were paid $11 million in ransom. Then, on the 2nd of July, they made their biggest attack yet. An enormous software company called Kaseya. Hundreds of supermarkets in Sweden are forced to close after a cyber attack that's hit organizations all around the world. 
A massive cyber attack that started at a Miami-based IT company sent shockwaves worldwide after it impacted hundreds of businesses in the U.S. and in other countries. By some way of measuring, this was the biggest ransomware attack in history. More than 800 and maybe as many as 1,500 businesses that used Kaseya's software were compromised. In what must have been a tense phone call on July 9th, Biden says he told President Putin... The United States expects when a ransomware operation is coming from its soil, even though it's not, not sponsored by the state, we expect them to act and we give them enough information to act on who that is. And then, on July 13th... In Tech Watch Now, the ransomware gang known as R-Evil appears to have disappeared from the internet. The Russian R-Evil just disappeared. Vanished. Our evil's blog and payment website went down on Tuesday, and there is speculation that it was deliberately targeted by state actors. Experts speculated that Russia had finally cracked down. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. The story doesn't end there, though. In fact, this is where things start to get strange. Ransomware groups disappear all the time. They come and go. Usually they reconstitute as something else, new brand. Sometimes it's the same people, sometimes not. But in September, our evil came back, but not for long. Our evil has actually gone down several times. Uh, so the first time that they went down was in July, after they had launched another major attack on the Kaseya software uh, company. But right after that attack, uh, the Arrival group disappeared voluntarily. And as we later learned when they popped up again in September, the reason that they had disappeared is they said that one of their members, um, a person that goes by the nickname Unknown, uh, had just vanished uh, into thin air without an explanation. And they were very afraid that maybe he had gotten arrested, maybe he was um, ratting them out. So they decided it was safer to just shut down and lay low for a few months to see what happens. And then in September, when they came back, they said they hadn't heard anything, they hadn't heard of any arrests. So they assumed that maybe that person had just died uh, and they don't know his identity uh, because they communicate only online. So they, they had no ability to, to actually verify that. And But they decided it was safe enough to resume operations. That guy, unknown, he just entirely disappeared. Nobody's heard from him since the Kaseya attack, and he he went you know way way underground, and no one's heard. Alan Liska. Hi, my name's Alan Liska. I'm an intelligence analyst at Recorded Future, and what I do is I research malware, uh, mostly ransomware at this point, but really any sort of cyber criminal activity. So the gang member who goes by the name of Unknown may have disappeared, but our evil, well, it comes back. Coming back for our evil seems like it was a bad idea. That was one of the mistakes that Revil made specifically. And we know that the group that restarted Revil didn't include the original founder. But but what the other, the developers um, and, and other members of the Revil group did, that was a big mistake, um, was they just resurfaced their old infrastructure. So what happened was you had the Kaseya attack, and Kaseya attack is probably the largest ransomware attack since either NotPetya or WannaCry. 
um, certainly in terms of the number of victims and simultaneous uh, 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 victims. And that got the world's attention as far as every intelligence agency in every country outside of Russia um, was now looking at Revil. And a whole lot of data was collected very fast on, on that group and, and their infrastructure and how they work, etc. And then uh, a month later, Cyber Command launches this offensive action against them um, uh, to try to shut down uh, their infrastructure. Uh, prevent people from going to their websites. And then uh, as, as part of the response to that cyber command operations, they start looking at their systems and they realize they had been hacked by some other party. And uh, that party was uh, sitting on their servers and potentially monitoring what they were doing and looking for them. And that was cause enough for them to say, you know what, uh, too much heat here, time to go away. The American government had turned the tables on our evil. The group was forced offline. That battle's still going on. It's currently November. Today we are announcing that we are bringing to justice an alleged perpetrator of a significant, wide-reaching ransomware attack. And as I'm recording... Moments ago, uh, the Department of Justice releasing new information on a Ukrainian man that was charged with ransomware attacks that affected 1,500... The U.S. Department of Justice has just charged a Ukrainian national, Yaroslav Vasinsky, who is in custody and a Russian national, Evgeny Polyanin, who is not, with fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy charges relating to the deployment of the Our Evil ransomware. They also seized $6 million. Well, so this is a really an, an interesting use case because most of the time when, uh, when a ransomware group is stopped by law enforcement, it's a direct seizure. So the you know, law enforcement, whether that's US law enforcement or UK law enforcement or Ukrainian law enforcement or, or wherever, reaches out to a hosting provider or whoever is hosting the services of the ransomware group and says, you know, and issues an edict saying, hey, by law, you have to hand over the contents of these servers to us. That's the way it normally happens. Or um, uh, if you've seen the videos from Ukrainian cyber police, which are amazing, and I highly recommend people watching them, um, of the the physical takedowns of these ransomware groups where you know the police kind of go barging in, take the assets, take the cash, take the cars away. This was a little bit different, though in that somebody in, uh, in law enforcement, uh, whether it was the FBI or whether another law enforcement agency um, working with the FBI had managed to gain access to credentials to the servers that uh, the Revil group was using, and they directly logged on to take over the servers that way and lock out the admins. So sort of turning their own playbook against them, right? Exactly. And it wasn't just law enforcement who were closing in. Hi, congrats on the story. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I wonder if you could start by doing the kind of podcast-style intro, you know, like I'm hacking and I'm a reporter for just sort of introduce yourself kind of way. Yeah, sure thing. So, hi, my name is Hakan uh, Tandreverde. I work with public broadcasting in Germany, and we had a story 
together with colleagues at Die Zeit, which is a weekly in Germany, and we were following the trail of a ransomware, so a guy involved in ransomware and not your standard um, affiliate, so to speak, but one of the core members of the group. And since we've been doing this type of investigation, hacking, state-sponsored hacking, and so on, for quite a while, we were always interested in finding out more about the guys who might be behind it. At the end of October, Hakan and his colleagues published a story in which they lifted the lid off the life of one of the members of the group. So what we found is one person, we call him Nikolai K in the story, it's not his real name, but we were able to find accounts that are either belo- that either belong to him directly or to people he hangs around with, uh, one of them being his wife. It's not known whether this is the Russian one of the two people the US just charged. But it's a fair bet. And they showed their lifestyle on various social media platforms, um, among others, obviously Instagram, because that's where you show how you're living nowadays. And you could see the lavish life uh, they were living, meaning time spent on yachts, uh, expensive clothing, so your Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Yves Saint Laurent, all that. Uh, expensive cars. One detail particularly stuck with Harkin. Yeah, so the Bitcoin watch is the most interesting thing to me, uh, to be honest, just because if you buy this watch and it costs, so it starts at, I would say, 10,000 euros, and if I recall correctly, ends at 75,000 euros or something in that uh, price range, you have the possibility to include a public wallet address uh, when you buy that watch. So depending on whether he did use that feature uh, to etch his address on the dial and that address being tied to ransomware money directly, he would carry around uh, something you can charge him with on his arms, uh, which is kind of funny to me. Yeah, um, it's a Vanguard and crypto. Uh, that's what the watch is called. Um, limited edition, as far as I know. Um, so that's an expensive watch already. And he had multiple cars. I don't know if he just switched cars at one point, but 650 PS um, German manufactured cars. He. When he went to Turkey, the yacht he ordered cost about, we were able to find out, $1,300 a day. And so you can see how they were living, uh, what they were doing on that yacht, because they had a professional photographer who made a video. So you have like two to three minutes of how they ate nice and um, fresh fish. And um, how they, I don't know, how they just living a good life, to be quite honest. It looked like they were having a great time. What would you, what would you ask him first? Would you ask about the kind of human, you know, what he'd say to, um, to, the, to the victims of, of these attacks? I mean, 
So he's a core member. And what you were able to do is just follow some of the negotiations the affiliates were having with the companies they had hacked. And in these conversations, I've read, I don't know, I kept, I stopped counting at one point, but dozens of those negotiations. And for them, it was just purely professional. They were writing things like, listen, we know that you are able to pay $100,000 because here attached, please find your financial statement from last year. So don't uh, bullshit us saying that you can only pay $10,000. We know how well your company is working and our demand is not unreasonable. So as far as I could understand it from reading these negotiations, for the affiliates, at least, it was just a professional thing. They had hacked the company because their security was lax or whatever, and they wanted to profit off of that. But after seeing how people stood for hours trying to get gasoline after the colonial hack or co-op after the Reval hack in Sweden having to shut down um, their supermarkets, it's hard for me to think that doesn't affect you at all. So that's why I would ask the question. Sedan Moynihan and the Harris Federation didn't pay a ransom to our evil, but it still was an expensive undertaking. There's a long tail to these things. The company they'd brought in helped them rebuild their systems and secure them against future attacks. But that doesn't come cheap. The whole thing, when it was finished, had probably cost us about 750k. And that's, you know, that, that's not a kind of abstract figure. That's coming out of, of money that would otherwise be helping pupils, right? It's, it's looking like our evil is one of the first time that these kind of groups, we're actually closing in on the people who are actually doing it. The uh, newspaper used open source information to, to track to, to an actual... Russian person, you know, who was on uh, a yacht, living it up with with fancy cars and and this kind of lifestyle. If you could sort of speak to him and knowing that you know this was off the back of of these kind of of criminal operations, what what do you think you'd you'd say to him if you had the opportunity? Um, but I would hope there is some morality in all of us and attacking vulnerable organisations, be they hospitals or schools or other such places is is beyond the pale and it's not it's not an appropriate way to be making money the purpose of our schools is to try and level the playing field why would anybody think that it's appropriate to try and take money from that situation in order to um have more cars or a yacht i just can't get my head around it When I started looking into our evil back in September, it still felt completely anonymous, like I was trying to peer into a black box. It had perpetrated perhaps the widest ranging ransomware attack in history, and yet it appeared impenetrable. But over the course of making this episode, things have started to fit together. It feels like this baseless threat is slowly taking on a more human form. Law enforcement is closing in, and we're starting to get a sense of the lifestyle of these people. The gold watches of the higher-ups. The grim, 
call centers of the people doing the actual legwork. Super weird, isn't it? This is just what crime looks like now. And everyone's on computers, so it's just, you know, anyone's vulnerable to this. There's still a lot of unknowns. It's possible that the man who Hakan found living it up in the Crimea could be one and the same as Yevgeny Polyanin, the Russian who US authorities have just charged. But we don't know. In this game of cops and robbers, the cops have just scored a big win. But it's also an arms race. The next big group might not be so careless. The future is a scary place. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and reported by me, Nikki Wolf, and produced by Katie Gunning. Sound design was by Tom Kinsella. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. Now, you might have heard me speak about this already, or you might have listened to episode one in this feed a couple of weeks ago. But if you haven't listened to our new investigative series, Sweet Bobby, then you've got to. It's a story about a 10-year catfishing scam, and it's hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alexi Mostras. It is currently number one on the Apple Podcast charts, and you can listen to all the episodes as they're released by subscribing to Sweet Bobby wherever you get your podcasts. I really recommend that you do that. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello, Tortoise listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Papercuts is the fast, funny daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half hour package. That's Papercuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app.